0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Usually the last Wednesday of the month or so, I say a few words about this practice of generosity. Sometimes we use the Pali word "dana." It's really meant to be a... a pretty radical shift in how we relate to all things in life quite naturally it's not even about being bad but quite naturally we relate with our friends our other the other people in our lives with our jobs society as a whole in this very strategic way what do i want how can i manipulate or interact with the different conditions at play to make things happen the way that I want them to happen. And it's not so much that we want to harm others, but we just understand that this is the world that we live in, where there are these different competing forces. And for me to get what I want, I have to be willing to get my hands dirty. So that's pretty much how we... And even if we don't like it, to whatever degree we participate in that world. So here at Common Ground, we have a a different practice. And uh, the one thing we don't want to do is not show up for it. So you can try sort of falling into the old mode, okay, what do I have to give in order to get here? Well, nothing. (laughs) It's not very challenging of... uh, you know, that interaction. You can take as many classes or whatever as you want, and no one's going to ever bug you about supporting the center. Because we're practicing this other mode where the the center, the teachings, the community, the place, everything's offered freely, and that happens because people have done what they've done in the past. So that allows the center, in a sense, to give everything away. So our job as people who participate is to practice, and this isn't easy, receiving it as a free gift. No strings attached. And that should be, if we do this right, it should be a cause for joy. Like, well, that's really nice that anybody, including myself, can show up, do whatever, take whatever, and it's a free gift. And then if you uh, do that and you get pretty good at receiving what the center offers freely, Then it might naturally arise that you want to, you feel good and you want to give back. But that would be a natural arising, not out of guilt, not because, because if if it comes out of guilt, then you didn't receive freely. It's like you felt like, yeah, they're giving it, the class is free, but I have to give. So we have to really practice receiving it freely. And then if we decide we want to give back, then it also should make us happy. That's how you know whatever you leave, if you decide to leave some money, for example, or volunteer time or whatever it might be, you know it's a free gift because you actually feel good about the gift you're giving. It feels good to give. It feels good to support something that I care about, something that I see as being good, and it makes me happy. In the same way, it feels really good. You know, When I go home and feed the cat, At the end of the day, and she shows her appreciation by gobbling down the food, that feels good. She doesn't need to say, Thank you so much, or give me a tip, or anything like that. It's a joy just to take care of this other living being in that way. So, to make this work, you know, because Common Ground, like any small nonprofit, we have, you know, the ordinary expense or cost structures of any organization this size, about $200,000 a year just to pay for the office staff and to support the teachers and take care of the building and other costs of the organization. But this money naturally, organically comes. So once a month I or somebody in the community just reminds us about this. There's a handout um, out in the lobby you can find if you're interested in more details, but Basically, any approach works, contributing at any time or putting yourself on a schedule or going to the website and having a certain amount taken out of your credit card at any frequency you want. So any of those ways work for volunteering your time. Or if you don't have time, skills, or money, just offering your good wishes. Feeling appreciative is also an offering. But we want to we get involved in the circle of freely receiving and giving. One, because it is a cause for happiness, not just in terms of your relation to the common ground, but you can set this emotion in any relationship you have anywhere in your life. Even like at your job which you're, where you're actually getting a paycheck, hopefully. Even that, even though in a sense you've got this contract, you do this, you get paid... You can practice seeing your work as a free gift, showing up wholeheartedly, giving fully and feeling good about what you're offering at your job site. And then when that check appears every two weeks or whenever, just appreciating that part of that circle is this receiving and just being grateful. In the same way, we can be grateful to receive the food that comes our way and the nice interactions with other people that come our way, the air that's available, all the things that show up in our lives that allow this life to happen. So feel free to check in with me or Tim, who's our program host tonight at the end, if you have any more specific questions about how this all works here at the center, or if at one of the, if you come regularly on Wednesday night and been coming to the center for a couple years and you'd like to give the five minute talk once a month instead of me, it's nice to have other voices. So just let me know if you'd like to do this sometime in the next few months. So we've been looking at this particular teaching called the five aggregates we started last week. And this is a very potent map. In fact, the Buddha talks about Taking up this contemplation, first you've got to hear it, then we have to memorize it. It's not complicated. Basically, it's thinking about what this is. Yes, if you weren't here last week, I, I gave a quiz to the group. I said, okay, what is this? And just notice the answer that comes to your mind. I'm at common ground. That's what this is. And that, I told people, would get you a D, <laughs> Because it doesn't really say anything, like I'm, that personal pronoun I am, at Common Ground, doesn't really say anything. Common Ground, too, is just this designation, what do we mean, Common Ground? So, of course, there is some shared meaning, we kind of know, but it, it doesn't really lead us to this direct and immediate experiencing of being here. It leads us to more thoughts, more concepts. So when we think of the question, what is this, the Buddha offers us something different than what we normally do with a question like that. Basically, what's this ongoing narrative in the mind, this conceptual narrative in the mind? So this is another map. It's also a conceptual map, of course, of the five aggregates, or the, the map of the mind and body. So the mind has four attributes the feeling tone, the perception, the mental formations and consciousness. This is just one moment of mind. And then the fifth is physicality. So the five of these things together of mind and body, it's, the, it's what this is. Last week I had people hold their hand out. You know, when you just feel your hand, not thinking about it, not imagining the hand, but just feeling the sensations of the hand. There's nothing male or female about sensation. There's nothing old or young about these sensations. There's nothing being at Common Ground Meditation Center about the sensations of the hand. So concepts of time, concepts of gender, concepts of race... Concepts of age, location, none of these things really fit the direct and immediate experience. Now, I'm not saying that concepts don't have a a place. They have a place in this world of interaction. But what allows us to live in a more liberated, a wiser, way with this world of interactions, of relationships, is to have experiences where the mind is going beyond the conceptual overlay. So this is why the Buddha taught this map of the five aggregates, sometimes called the five groups that the mind clings to, the five ways that the mind clings It's basically the mind is clinging to this because this is appearing to be something that's fixed or permanent or self. But that only happens because of this very superficial overlay of concept. Without concept, without this overlay, there's no grasping. There's no friction, no struggling reactivity, all of that comes from the conceptual overlay. Let's take something that's dramatic, maybe the most dramatic thing in life, death. Right? It just makes so much sense. Even before we're in the vicinity of death, I mean, none of us really know, but <clears throat> before it seems obvious that we're in the vicinity of death, we struggle with it. But what are we actually struggling with? The concept of mortality, right? It's an idea. And when that idea arises, right, it's like we talk about in terms of Buddhism, we have contact with experience. We can have contact with a sound. I can just say the word death, right? And that's a sound. There's contact. And then part of that contact is perception. The mind recognizes that sound, death. Right? And all the mental formations, all the conditioned patterns around that particular sound, because it's recognized, you remember that sound, I know that word, and that triggers all that mental conditioning that we have around death, like, I don't want death, I don't like death, I'm afraid of death, I don't know what death is, or maybe I'm interested in death, <laughs> I want to get out of here. So whatever it is for you, there's baggage. Right? So we have contact, we hear something. That's part of the material existence or material elements. These are the five physical senses of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and seeing. And then there's a feeling associated with that hearing, that word death. And there's a perception, the mind recognizes it. These aren't actually separate things, they're just different angles on this this mind body experience so we have contact the sound we have a feeling tone it's unpleasant for most of us there's a perception i recognize that word death because most of us speak english it's an obvious word we know that word the mind recognizes the sound There's a lot of mental conditioning that arises around it. We call this mental formations or all of the dispositions that tendencies we have around that world, word, all the baggage. And all of this is being known. This is consciousness. That's the fifth of these five aggregates. So this is the A plus answer. Not so much saying, oh yeah, this are the five aggregates, aggregates, but directly connecting or directly experiencing the five aggregates and not even seeing them as distinct things because as I said, they're just different facets of the same thing. But what this is, the actual answer when somebody asks you what this is, is before any word to know directly the experience. And you know the word, You know the direct experience when the mind isn't dependent on an image or word to know this, right? Do you need a word like "It's me at Common Ground," or even like a slightly more sophisticated answer, where this is just mind and body? But before we reflectively give that, reflexively give that answer there's this, the actual immediate direct experience of mind and body. So mindful awareness, this whole path of awakening is developing the skillful means to one, connect in this non-conceptual way with this, but to sustain mindful awareness of this. It's not about not thinking It's not about not having concepts arise in the mind or images arise in the mind. It's about the mind being less and less dependent on the thoughts, concepts, images that arise. They're so limiting. Joko Beck has a good way of describing this as, you know, we have a perfectly good house. You know, this Is perfectly fine, this direct, immediate experiencing. But the mind neurotically constructs a house right on top of the house. So like a superstructure or a surface. And this is this tendency of the mind then to get stuck or fixed on the surface description of what this is. And so persistent is that habit that we begin to forget what this is. And the mind is attending, is fixed, is caught up in its description of this. So it's like falling in love or getting involved in an intimate relationship, but never really meeting or connecting with that person. Whenever you're with that person or away from that person, the relationship is just a story you have in the mind. This is who this person is. This is who I am when I'm around this person. This is how it is for us. So even when you're in that relationship and relating with the person, you're actually relating to your ideas of who you think that person is or your ideas of what you think the relationship is. It's really easy to do. Or we could have an idea of who we are, which is what we do have. One thing, we have the idea that I'm a self apart from everything else. And then everything seems that way because we're relating to that idea of separation and not actually directly, immediately understanding the experience of this. It's so easy to think that when I say, you know, understanding the experience of this, that it's something mysterious or subtle. It's not. But it is beyond the mind's fixation on concepts. And we even have words, cliches even, that we use a lot like being in the flow or being in the groove or, you know, just uh, times when, because of the certain conditions that were present, the mind, to some degree at least, dropped its fixation, its attachment to thoughts. When I was younger, and uh, I was really into getting out in the wilderness a lot and uh, backpacking and things like that. And I used to love to, uh, I, for a while I worked in Washington, D.C., we drive out to West Virginia some of the more wilderness places are there and there are a lot of these streams going down the mountains and hills and you can do boulder boulder hopping i don't know if you've ever done this and it's it's nice cuz it's not so dangerous but you have to you can't really think about what you're doing it's you can't really think about where you're going to jump next cuz it's it's all happening a little too fast for that you just have to do it and If you've ever done things like this, and it doesn't have to be boulder hopping, you can be playing basketball or making love or any number of things, but if you, if something's unfolding in a natural organic way and you can, some of these activities, you get the mind, there's like a natural feedback mechanism that if you start to overthink it, it stops working. You just have to let it happen. And a lot of joy arises. And you might think, oh, God, boulder hopping is just the the best thing. But it isn't actually the best thing. It's just hopping from one rock to the next. There's nothing mystical or special about that except that it's just dangerous enough, just interesting enough that that cognitive process of thinking about who you are, what you're doing, and then attaching, getting identified with that mental conceptualizing process just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. So the mind drops it or falls into the background. And the mind is quite naturally in a more immediate, direct relationship with this mind-body experiencing. And it can be an important lesson. So this is exactly what can happen in a good set. You know, when we invite a teacher or, you know, you read in a book, you get instructions to be mindful of the breathing process, to bring the attention, mindful awareness to the touching. As the air goes in the nostrils, you just feel the touching sensations. And the air goes out of the nostrils, you feel those touching sensations. Or you might just feel the body more generally, just the experience of sitting. And as the mind settles, you feel just the flow of sensations because the sensations of any posture whether you're sitting still or moving the body the actual experience of sensation is a flow it's a movement or you could be observing the mind the mind when the mind is relatively clear and steady when the attention is relatively clear and steady then mental activity is also like a river it's a flow or waterfall sometimes it's quite wild, and sometimes it's just a steady stream of mentality, of mental activity, of emotionality and cognitive activity. But anyway, that, when the meditation is sort of settling, you can have that same experience as jumping from one boulder to the next, and there's no danger. (laughs) You can slip on a boulder, but you're not going to slip. Or slipping in meditation means your mind gets identified, and then you you know, kind of in your more normal state of consciousness, but then you can always begin again. Letting things flow, letting things move. No matter how pleasant or unpleasant the movement of mind is or the movement of sensation is, can it be allowed to be what it is? So when people start to experience joy in their meditation practice, it isn't that they have gone someplace else. Rather, it's the mind is relating to this, this mind-body experiencing, without fixing, without projecting a concept, a thought, or an idea about what this is, and then getting identified. Now, there still may be thought, cognitive activity, and there's nothing wrong with cognitive activity. It's nice when it's quiet, But it doesn't need to be quiet what needs to go away is the mind's dependency on thought the tendency of the mind to get tight or fixed or grasping the thought the meaning so it's like holding meaning lightly so that's why you can even practice when you're talking and somebody says to you tell me your life story and you would say you know well i was born in 1958, you know, in this, such and such a place, my skin color is this way, my culture that I grew up in was like this, I had these kinds of experiences, but we could be holding all of that stuff, all that meaning, that conceptual meaning as we paint the picture for another person, we can be holding it very lightly. Or... We could be holding it very tightly. You know, like this is some fixed absolute truth. And it's really important like, to start to unpack these places where we're strongly identified with ideas that have to do with ourselves or ideas that have to do with others. Concepts have a place that... We're not going to suffer. Concepts have to, be, have to be held lightly for what they are. They are designations. So the words, Mark Nunberg, my name, right? Can we hold it lightly? Like they point to this. But what is this? Well, this is this changing impersonal process of body and mind being known. But I... Sometimes we hear that word, you know, and we can get really tight. Or if you're traveling and somebody says Minneapolis, I'm from Minneapolis. <laughs> you know, and there's like this, the mind gets fixed. Or even, you know, people can, I went to that school, you know, and you start singing your school song together or, you know, whatever. Talk about the places you partied. So there's all of these ways that our mind tends to congeal and get tight. All these thoughts or images or concepts. And we're quite literally imprisoned. So the way out is we learn this map. Okay, The Buddha says, start living your life from this map of mind-body. And because the mind is more seductive, more tricky, see the mind as the dynamic of these four things. There's, whenever there's contact, any experience that's being known by consciousness, then of course there's consciousness, because without consciousness, there's no knowing, right? That's they're synonymous with knowing. So any moment of contact with experience, consciousness, you can't have contact without a feeling. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It just comes. Even something that's unfamiliar... It has a feeling of something being unfamiliar, whatever that is for you. And we recognize it, right? That's the perception as being unfamiliar or being familiar. And there's any, whatever baggage there is, that's the mental formations. That's all that other cognitive stuff that arises in conjunction with the contact with experience and the perception and the feeling tone. So, even if you've never had this experience before, if it's neutral, you have stuff that arises when you're having a neutral experience or a pleasant experience. Even if you don't know what the experience is, but it's kind of pleasant, you're going to have some baggage because it's pleasant or because it's unpleasant. And so the contact comes through the mind knowing mental activity or sound or sight or smell or taste or touch. That's what contact is through one of the six sense gates, the five physical senses and the mind knowing the mind itself. So there's contact. Consciousness knows it. Right with contact is perception, feeling tone, other stuff, mental formations. And that's we learn to experience life in this way. So I want to say a little bit more about perception because it's tricky. In fact, the way the Buddha talks about these five things, he's got a great way of talking about how ephemeral, unreal, empty, and insubstantial these five things are of the mind and body. Because it's only the concept of me, my body, my mind, right here behind my eyeballs, and all the ideas about, about, that I have about me, my body and mind, that makes it feel substantial. Concepts seem substantial because I've been calling myself me for a long time. So the concept me, my body and mind, seems constant and real. But he calls these five things, the dynamic of these five things, compared respectively to a lump of froth. So you know like on a river or the shore of a lake you get that sort of froth there. That's what he compares to the body. The five physical senses. Now it seems the body tactically physicality it seems so solid and real. Sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. But it's much more ephemeral. What you have to really discover, and this is especially pronounced with the body. And we did a little bit of this last week when we were just feeling the hand a sensation. It loses the sense of substance when you tune into the actual physicality of sensation and not the idea of the hand or the image of the hand. And this happens in meditation when people's, Uh, When a mind gets clearer and more steady, then the concept of body falls away and what's left is sensation. And sensation is quite unformed. It is very much like the froth on a lake shore. It has an appearance of being something, but when you look, there's not much there of real substance. And that's the actual experience of physicality when the mind settles down. It's very light and ephemeral. So check that out. Now that means that the mind has to be liberated from its idea of body. We can't know the body and be identified with our idea of our body at the same time. The idea, the mind's fixation or attachment or identification with the idea of the body, like the body has weight, the body has shape, the body is made up of bones and blood. These are all concepts. The body is male. The body is 56 years old. The body is white-skinned or whatever. These are concepts. The actual experience of sensation is none of these things. So he, he likens the body, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching to a lump of uh, froth. He compares feeling tone to a bubble, perception to a mirage. He equates mental formations to a coraless banana tree. Now, if you've seen banana trees, you know they have a lot of weight. When the fruit is ripening on a banana tree, you know, there's a lot of weight. It looks pretty substantial. I mean, the stalk of a banana tree, it can be big. But when you peel it away, there's really no wood there. It's not like a normal tree where you take the bark off and there's this hardwood. It's just uh, it's a different kind of plant it's, it, it doesn't have any inner wood to it, any anything solid, and so after a while, I think at the end of the season, uh, some of you who maybe grew up in the tropics know this. It just there's really nothing there. It just falls over and basically disintegrates, and then I think takes uh, regrows next year. Is that right? People know this, so that the Buddha uses that for mental formations. So when my dispositions, all my like somebody walks in the room and I've got some history with that person. We've maybe had like a lot of difficult times together, or I'm deeply in love with that person or madly attracted to that person. They walk in the room, then all these mental formations arise and they can seem very substantial. And then something then it's something else happens, and whatever that was, that drama, that big, it just can completely disappear. Think about substantial things that have arisen. You know, it's really easy with perceptions. And the mind gets locked in. I'll just give you a tiny example. I came in the uh, center last Sunday. And uh, early, you know, the sit, the morning sit on Sunday morning begins, goes from 8 to 10 a.m. in the morning. And I got here like at 7.20, so 40 minutes or so before the opening and there's somebody, one of the volunteers comes in open, but I had to do some work, so I got here early. And the door is wide open, the lights were on, and the air conditioning was on. And uh, that seemed a little strange. And then, of course, my mind immediately went to, okay, who was here Saturday, and why did not they lock up correctly? right? And then my, so I have this perception, because I walked in and the door was open, the lights were on. So that was the contact feeling the door open when it should have been locked, seeing the lights on, noticing the air conditioning was on. So those were sense contacts. The mind recognized them, had a feeling tone. You can maybe imagine what it was, like maybe a little, what's going on here? Maybe a little unpleasant. I mean, it wasn't terrible or anything. And then all the mental formations. is like that banana tree, you know, very substantial, like this is a problem that needs to be solved. I need to send out an email you know, let people know like, how, you, how you close the center, which of course I did. And I think a pretty skillful way I didn't because you, know, you want the, the, the tendency of my mind and maybe most of our minds is to be sure about my perception. I've gotten burnt enough times in my life to less and less now ever be sure about any perception my mind ever creates. Because perceptions, as it says here, are, what is it? The perception is like a mirage. It seems like it's the truth, but it may not be the truth in any substantial sense. Well, this is a perfect example because, and I should have known this, uh, the person who normally opens on Sunday couldn't. He found somebody to sub for him, but that person, didn't have the key to open up and didn't know how to open up. So he agreed to come by early to open up. He just happened to come by more than 40 minutes before the opening because that's what worked in his schedule. He had to be somewhere else. And so I had this whole idea. And it, you know, no harm was done or anything like that. But how many times, even in one day, let alone a lifetime, do we have this idea, this perception that For a while, the mind just takes as the truth. This person over here is smiling because he had this idea that he'd be going, joining the Peace Corps and being in Africa. And then all of a sudden, something changed that maybe he didn't expect to happen. So we have these perceptions about what's true, who somebody else is, what I would do in a situation, and then something, then we see it's not the truth. It was just an idea that we had. So the, the in the tradition, there's some ways to recognize the mirage-like quality of perception. Now, perceptions when it's in balance with wisdom and mindfulness, it can really help us see more deeply into experience, like the concept, the perception, there is a body here, or... There is a mind-body having an experience here. Like that's a concept, a perception. And that perception might lead, sort of support, mindful awareness going beyond concepts into the direct, immediate experience. Or we could have a perception that leads the mind into mental proliferation, endless thinking, one thing after the next. And so the mind is actually getting further and further away from the immediate, direct experience of this, the way it is. This is what we mean by Dhamma, the way it is. So the Buddha talks about uh, like the tricky places. I mentioned this already, the perception of solidity. And this isn't just in terms of the body, like I was talking about, but anything that seems solid we have the perception of solidity by relationship with another person. There are people in this room who had very close, intimate relationships with another person, maybe married or in a partnership, and then the person died. And they didn't think the person was going to die until they got sick and died. And this ha- this is not an unusual situation. Or another I don't know how many people in the room had a very solid relationship and then it changed. Or had a very solid idea that I'd be in a long-term relationship and then it never happened. So we had all these sort of fixed ideas of solidity. I'm healthy until we're not healthy. I'm young and vibrant. I have a young, vibrant body until we start getting older. And then we have something else, you know a body that starts to either quickly or slowly fall apart, or not as nimble, not as strong. We had good eyesight, so we don't anymore. So how many places in life seem solid? Joseph Goldstein, in his chapter on the five aggregates, says, says, solidity is the hallucination of perception. It's literally a hallucination. It's a mirage that things are solid. Because the very truth that we wake up to when we practice regularly with sincerity, we re- wake up gradually to the process nature of all things. Mind and body is an unfolding process. There's nothing solid about an unfolding process. Because the, the very nature, just intellectually, the very nature of a process is something is arising and ceasing It has to cease for the next moment of the process to arise. And before it's even really there as a thing, it has to get out of the way for the next moment of the process. So a process, by definition, never really comes into being. It's a flow. You know, like in physics, if you've ever read anything about the new physics, there are these phenomena, like when they study light. They study, they look at it in one way, And it seems like light is a photon. It's a thing that's moving through space. There's a little bit of light energy we call a photon moving. And it hits the retina. And then we have the perception of light. But you look at light in another way, and it's not a thing at all. It can't be defined as a concrete thing. It's a wave. It's a wave of energy. It doesn't have substance. Even a physicist would tell us even in terms of our body which from a conceptual point of view we don't think of Western science like biology as being a concept but it's all concept. Blood is a concept. Fluid is a concept. Mass is a concept. Weight, concept. Volume is a concept. These are all concepts. And what a physicist would tell us you know, differently than uh, biologists is that when you really look at the body, it's made up of these things called atoms or molecules. And then, of course, those things are made up of other things like protons and neutrons. And, and then those things are made up of other things. And when you really get down to it, what's really there, you know what they say? What do they say is really there? When you really look down deep, 99.999% of what's really there is space empty space but that's not the conceptual idea of what the body is or what the earth is or what this is right because we're living in the level of uh, of conceptual perceiving or perception being dominated by concept and then the mind fixes identifies with the concept and stops immediately directly experiencing Sensation is sensation, sound is sound, sight is sight, thought is thought, smell and taste is smell and taste. Because directly, immediately, this insubstantial nature is obvious. So as you work with perception, notice how often there is the perception of solidity and then check it out. Go beyond the superficial, the surface level, and really see if that, Surface level actually holds up when the attention to the way it is, to Dhamma, is sustained in this wise, mindful way. And you'll see how this is, the substantial sense of the body begins to fall away. Or even, like, it seems so true that we're a common ground. But when you just hang out here, the common groundness of this begins to disappear. Remember when you were a kid and somebody would say, I want you to repeat the word, you know, Minneapolis, 20 times. Minneapolis, 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 Minneapolis. And then after a while, the concept of the word, like this place that looks like this, begins to go away and it's just sound being heard, you know, just the tone and pitch and the kind of rhythm of the word Minneapolis 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 and the conceptual meaning goes away because it's so ridiculous and all of a sudden it, we get a little sort of you know altered state of consciousness i don't know if you did this as a kid this was sort of made the rounds when i was you know in elementary school in the mid 60s this was sort of the thing <laughs> and it it was like a little heady you know to sort of break free momentarily of our whole conceptual fixation. And we can can literally train the mind. So this is one thing to be paying attention to, the perception of solidity. Other concepts to be on the lookout for are place, anything that is a place, home, Minneapolis. I talked last week about the United States of America You know, even with Google Maps, you know, you know, it's so great. You can just take off the roads and all this sort of like labels. And it's like really different. As soon as they've got the boundary of Minnesota, it's like, oh yeah, place. Well, you look up at the sky in the north and you see the Big Dipper, Big Dipper. It's really hard not to see the Big Dipper, but the Big Dipper isn't really anything. Right? There isn't actually a Big Dipper. This is, Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, loves to tell this story, you know. The Big Dipper doesn't exist. (laughs) He'd say something like that. Because, you know, it's astounding, because it seems like there's a Big Dipper up there, just like it seems like there's a Minnesota here. But there really isn't a Minnesota. There's nothing between, nothing different about the last inch of Minnesota and the beginning of Canada, or Iowa, or any of the other places. But it seems that way. So just notice, like do this tonight. Go to, get on the internet and just look at, and because you can zoom out and you can really see there's, and it kind of breaks free of these boundaries that we get fixed in. There's a very fun kids book. If you have young kids around, get it. And you can watch it on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and you look, Zoom, and the author, I wrote down the author's name somewhere here. Oh, Istan, uh, Istvan Banye. But if I think if you just Google Zoom, and then what it is is you see a little. I don't think there are any words in the book. You see a picture, and it you know it's somebody like cooking over a, a fire. And then the next one you're zooming out, and you see that that picture, that image of the somebody cooking on the fire is just a picture that somebody's looking at, and then it keeps zooming out like this you know, 30 times. And you realize, because you always assume, oh, there's actually a person there cooking fire. And then you realize, oh, no, that's just a postage stamp that has a person cooking over a fire. Oh, and that picture of the envelope with the postage stamp is just itself contained in another image. And that's contained in, and on and on like that. And it's just sort of, again, revealing the mirage-like nature of perception. Because when I go, when I bring to mind my wife, when, you know, that's just a mirage. There's nothing when, whatever, you know, that about that perception isn't who she is. We can't capture this with any concept, but it's useful, like because I say when, and some of you know who I'm talking about. So, it's useful to have concepts. It's useful for me to organize my own cognitive activity to have concepts, but we don't want to be confused by them. So, notice perceptions of solidity, place, ownership, like that, like, <laughs> you know, my water thing. And this sense of ownership, like, what does that mean, my Water jug. What does that mean? Mine. And it's so interesting, like, if somebody walks in and they're sitting in my chair. That's where I sit. <laughs> it would be really interesting for me, especially. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> and then the other tricky places around time. Past, future, present, they seem so real. The the perception of past makes it appear that there's actually a past somewhere, doesn't it? Like, remember when you were five years old or 18 years old? Doesn't it seem like that exists somewhere? That person, that past. Or, you know, Monday seems real tomorrow it seems like it's a, it's going to it's going to happen in a very but it doesn't exist it's a perception it's an idea tomorrow monday that's an idea but it's a very seductive idea it actually seems like it exists the civil war that's a concept in the mind that has a perception as content, you know, the mental formations. It's being known. There's a feeling tone. So all of these things around time, very seductive. Joseph asks in this chapter, you know, these things like, how old is your breath? Or, is the pain in your knee male or female? Is there anything male or female about the pain in your knee? See, these concepts of Place and and time, and self in particular, is the most seductive of all the perceptions. There's a funny story. There's uh, in the Sufi tradition, um, which is the, one of the mystical strands within Islam. And there's a sort of a wise fool. Several stories about this character Nasiruddin, from long ago, from like thirteen hundreds. And a lot of fun teachings. And one is, he's riding into town, and uh, he's going through the gates, and the soldiers there asks him to identify himself. He pulls out a mirror and he looks, and he goes, "Yep, it's me." <laughs> and we have that experience. You know, we look in the mirror, and it's like, "Oh yeah, that's me." You know, well, what is going on in that experience? And this is also a good place to experiment. It's, there's a part of the path of awakening that takes a lot of creativity, a lot of exploration, and uh, taking some chances. So the next time you're in a mirror, instead of being self-conscious, I mean, we can be unconsciously in front of a mirror and you know, doing all our stuff for a long period of time, but to realize you're looking at yourself, then we get self-conscious. So stand there Intentionally stand in front of a mirror, notice the self consciousness, and then just relax with that. And you'll find your mind can flip back and forth from the very ordinary, yep, that's me, to, I don't know, what the hell's going on? (laughs) (laughs) To this place where it's unformed. It's just like just seeing shape, color, form, and then right back, no, no, that's me. And then And just notice if you hang out now, it might initially take you a little time to get to this place where you can be in the place of just seeing, seeing is just seeing, to the very more ordinary state of consciousness. Yep, that's me. I'm looking good, or not looking good, or whatever. So all those sort of things. I'm showing my age, or I'm looking pretty young today, or whatever we might do with that ordinary state of consciousness. And then... Keep relaxing. Just keep trusting the immediate, direct experience of seeing. Seeing is just seeing. It's just color, shape, form. It's okay if the mind recognizes that it can't. you can't stop perception from happening. So, of course, that part of the mind that recognizes is still going to recognize that image as, yeah, that's me. But you don't have to be confused by the perception. You can just stay on the level of seeing. So we don't have too much time, but just maybe time for one comment. Yeah, Ann? <laughs> Sorry but I have to ask Okay, so compassion and clarity are concepts. And they often lead to wisdom and forgiveness, which are also concepts, and yet they cause sensation and experience to accrue in a body so that a person could have sort of a transformative experience so there's change that happens. So how so so is Buddhism maximizing that idea relate concept to like transformation and like well everything is process, everything's unfolding and this unfolding is lawful. And then when there's something part of this unfolding that we call ignorance, so imagining that this natural lawful unfolding is something other than what it is, that's what ignorance is, then there is the appearance of friction in the natural unfolding. It's an appearance of friction, which we call suffering. So, that friction, that suffering arises when there's a mind that imagines that this natural unfolding is something other than what it is. So, the practice is a thought that arises within an, within an ignorant mind there's no teachings in a liberated mind we only need spiritual teachings from the point of view of ignorance right so from the point of view of ignorance teachings arise and they say hey this is a natural unfolding process notice how suffering arises because this mind is misunderstanding is not recognizing that this is a natural unfolding process, that it's inherently free already. So the teachings is a concept that arises in an ignorant mind that's inviting that mind to not get confused by the suffering that appears to be here, the tension. Because what I normally do in a nor- normally ignorant mind is I, I, there appears to be tension And I react to that appearance of tension by doing something that creates the appearance of tension and on and on and on. So to break that cycle, we need some teachings coming in that says basically don't keep doing what you're doing. Instead, be mindfully aware of the way it is because then you're going to wake up to this being a natural, organic, lawful unfolding. And the more you can trust that, the more you're going to release the problem, which is constructing the appearance of a problem. That's the problem. The mind constructing the appearance of a problem. In other words, constructing the sense of separation. We have to leave it here. It's thirty now. But just take a few seconds and let, let go of the words. Enough time to take a breath or two together. Trusting this to be what it is. Not afraid of the thinking mind, but not confused by it.